You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode number 80. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. And I'm Montgomery Scott. That's not nearly as clever as your normal. Ah, well, look, how many of these I've done? They're not all going to be fucking brilliant. Yeah, I'm real. You realize I'm going to play that clip back to you every so often. They're not all going to be brilliant. Like that's you just ammunition. Like just, they're huge not all going of to ammunition. be fucking brilliant. They will all be brilliant, just not at the level of fucking brilliant. I thought you were, all, you were going to say they're all going to be fucking. I hope so. <laughs> so today we are going to be discussing uh, Star Trek and its 50th anniversary, because just past this week, right? Yep, just just this uh, this past week. Well, I mean, we're both pretty big Star Trek nerds. It's something we've we bonded over over the years, and I grew up on that stuff. I kind of like was into it, and then would fall out of it, and then come back into it. But you've always kind of had a—it's been a constant presence in your life because I feel like when we were living together, I feel like in the four years that I watched you go uh, live there, you went through the series at least twice. Like I feel like everything, like. At least Voyager, DS9, and Next Gen, like, twice. I went through them completely once while you live with me. And then I went through... I, I would go through bits and pieces that I liked. Okay. But yeah, no, it's, it's definitely you... been a huge uh, influence on both my, my intake of pop culture and just... I don't want to say life in general, but, you know, it's certainly been a source of enjoyment since I was a kid. Do you remember wh when you first found out about it? Do you like what was the first time you saw it or encountered it? I don't remember the first time I encountered it. Probably the the youngest I can remember it though. My dad recorded a couple of episodes so I could watch them. He recorded when actually and actually it was when they aired the next gen season finale or se um, season opener. Uh huh. Uh, and I can't remember which half it was, but it was when uh, Lore gives Data the emotion chip from Doctor Sung. Yeah. And, then, and he's leading the uh, the Rogue Borg element. Mm hmm. I can't remember if it was like the, it was the 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 finale half of that one or the season premiere half of that one, but I remember my dad recorded that one for me so I could watch it later. And I remember so watching the uh, the series finale live. I remember the series finale really big, and it, like you, it was my father who got me into it because my dad was a big science fiction fan. Like he he was just always interested in science fiction, and he was a Star Trek fan. And I think he really did enjoy the next gen, the next generation series a lot. So he watched it. He was like, back then you had to watch it when it aired, right? So you know he would watch it, so I would watch it with him. So I, as like being young, I have a a collection of fragmented memories from all sorts of different episodes. So that when I sit and watch the episode in full, I'm like, oh, I remember this now. Right. I remember this. This was pretty good. But it was all, yeah. I basically grew up on the next generation, like I think you did. And then you got into DS9 and Voyager, and as we, I kind of grew grew up. What kept you watching the show? Do so you remember, like, what was the appeal for you? So I actually didn't keep watching the show. I got I got really into the original series movies, and that, uh -huh. that's kind of where my interest kept going. Mm -hmm. I didn't start watching DS Nine like really watching. I mean, I saw an episode here or there, or whatever. I didn't really start watching DS Nine or Voyager until we were in college. Mm. A friend of a friend of ours, Brian Brown, 
Brian had the whole uh, DS9 series on, on DVD, and I borrowed it from him. And in college, I probably went through DS9 two or three times. Oh, wow. That was your favorite one, right? Yeah, that is still my favorite one. See, I guess I, I stuck through it as like a weekly fan from like just watching it with my dad from next gen through DS9 and then maybe four or five of the seasons of Voyager until I just got tired. Yeah. I just got tired of the show. It just I don't know what happened. It lost its interest for me somewhere along the line. And so, I, like I said, I kind of fell out of it and into it. I did enjoy the movies. I remember, like, watching the movies a lot because they re-ran them on television a bunch of times. Yeah, and also I remember my dad taking me to go see Star Trek Generations. Yeah, my dad a, did that, too. It was a big, big movie theater back in Phoenix called the Seneca Pre. And mm-hmm. it has one of those, like, really old, like, it's not IMAX big, but it's a really huge screen. And... uh and I remember him taking me there specifically to go see it because of, you know, how cool it would be to see it on this huge screen. I remember seeing the, the, the series finale and then, like, the movie came out soon after that. Yeah. And I remember my dad taking me to see the movie. And I thought the movie was just kind of okay. Um, but I do remember that. that was I, That's only memorable for me because that's when Blue Star Shopping Center actually had a movie theater. It hasn't had a movie theater in a long time, and it's back when I remember them having a movie theater. Nice. That goes way back. I saw Broken Arrow in that theater. Oh, that's dating me. <laughs> that's really dating. That's when my dad would sneak me off to R-rated movies as a kid. But, of course, the show didn't start with us. It predates us by, like, a solid 25 years. Oh, generation and a half, probably? Yeah, like, 20 years, I mean, we were both born in 85, so the right. show started when, in the mid-60s? 66. 66, okay, so like, a, yeah, a full 20 years before we were born. Yep. So that's when it started. Do, do, you're the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer to your kind of Star Trek trivia knowledge here. Just do a quick thumbnail sketch of how this show came about, who is, and, and Gene Roddenberry in the original cast. Uh, let's see what, let's see what I can call. I mean, so like, Gene Roddenberry... Prior to getting into show business, he's getting a little, little bit of an interesting career. Was a uh, bomber pilot. Was a pilot and pilot for Pan Am. Uh, There's actually a great oatmeal cartoon. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, it, it, I mean, tear jerking, and <laughs> and everything uh, of him surviving a an aircraft crash as either the pilot or co-pilot. I can't remember, and basically talking to a, a young woman who was on the flight. Uh, and then got himself into television, and this is one of the, the pilot the pilot shows he wrote. Well, he's talking to a woman on an aircraft. He's recounting her his story of crashing to this woman in the comic book. Yes. Right? Well, yes, it, okay. Yeah, in, in the comic, yes. In the comic. Just so it's because there wasn't a woman on the flight that he crashed in. No. Yeah, I mean, so Star Trek, to be perfectly honest, Star Trek almost didn't get made. Mm-hmm. And Star Trek getting made is actually in large part due to Lucille Ball. Because that was they were under her studio, right? Yep, they were under Desilu. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a they ordered a pilot, and CBS had first crack at it. Wait, wait, you, did you say Lucille Ball or Lucille Lou? Lucille Ball. Okay, her, I thought her, I heard... her production company is called Desilu. It was Desilu, right? Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. yeah. So they ordered a pilot. Uh, it, the pilot did not did not air, although we can you can go back and watch it. Uh, certain, That's the emotional Spock, right? That's the the emotional Spock. The emotional Spock, the female 
uh, executive officer, and no Captain Kirk. Right, it was Pike. It was Captain Pike. Without the, you know, one light for yes, two lights for no. <laughs> yeah. You think it's like, they're in the future, and like we were, Stephen Hawking can talk with his hand, and they still have one light for no, two lights, or one night light for yes, two for no in the future. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, that was good. I said they made the first pilot. CBS, I guess, got the first crack at it. Uh, decided to take a pass. They went to NBC. NBC liked the concept, but didn't didn't like the pilot. Mm-hmm. So they went ahead and they wanted to do a second pilot. Uh, Des- the the, the uh, studio, uh, the production board, Desilu's board, didn't want to spend the money on a, on a second pilot. And Lucille Ball actually over like vetoed the board as as their chairman, and put the second one into production. And that's what became in the first episode of Star Trek. Now, I think what's interesting for Star for Star Trek at its time, it, you talk, you mentioned the cast. You know, obviously it's a cast we've kind of come to know and love, and almost take for granted. Yeah, like it's just they're always they're always going to be around, right? Right, yeah, and although I think I think Leonard Nimoy's passing recently kind of has kind of shaken that mm-hmm. that that thought, but it was also it's also a pretty diverse diverse crew, you know, right? Cast, right? You have an African American female, you've got an Asian man, and you've got at that, at that point a a Russian character as of second right. season, right? All three of which you know are fairly controversial for their time. Yeah, now Gene Roddenberry was all about like social commentary in the in that original Star Trek series. Oh, absolutely. Like, allegories going throughout Star Trek and and him really talking about what's going on with America at the time. Absolutely. No, Roddenberry is a very very socially conscious person. Mm-hmm. And and knew the fact that the studio wouldn't let him come straight out and do an episode about racism, you know, mm-hmm. or th- or things like that. And instead, like you said, he wrapped them in allegories, or he, you know, it was an alien being racist towards another group of aliens. Yeah, for what appeared to be trivial reasons, you couldn't. Right. He couldn't do human racism, but you could do alien racism, and somehow that got passed. Right, and and he he knew enough to make that happen, and and. I, I think that's one of the reasons the original series did so well. You know, we're, we kind of see this, well, I mean, for, I think you and I agree far too often now. Star Trek is actually one of the first series to be saved by the fans. Mm-hmm. And that it was actually scheduled to be canceled after the second season. And mm-hmm. there was so much fan outcry about it and so many letters that they renewed it for a third season. Right. Uh, Star Trek's also one of the few shows that didn't make the 100 episode mark. The original series had 79 episodes, I think. Yep. Uh, let me check. I've got kind of got my notes right in front of me. So yeah, so 79 I'll... episodes. Yep. Uh, yeah, I have, I have a number. I have 80, but maybe that's including the pilot. Yeah, I mean, it might. But it's one of the few shows that didn't make the 100 episode mark for syndication and still went into syndication. Right. And in, in fact, Star, Star Trek is, I believe 69 was the last year that Nielsen didn't do breakdowns based on age demographics mm-hmm. and that's part of the reason star trek was canceled was because the of the the ratings had nielsen done the age breakdowns 
Star Trek was killing it for the 1835 year old male demographic, mm-hmm. which is very important to advertisers. Sure, sure. So Star Trek would have actually continued going, continued uh, had they done that, and in part that's a big reason why it went into syndication the way it did. Right, is that they're you know 18 to 35 year old males loved it. Um, actually. I had a story from one of the one of the instructors at Maritime, who was a who's an alumni from the early '70s, I think. Mm-hmm. He's got a mate. We helped. It was mate stalking. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me they actually they got an hour of TV a week when he was a cadet. And they had to petition the commandant of cadets to allow them to shift the t- the hour of TV time by thirty minutes, so that they could watch a full episode of Star Trek. That's something. Yeah. What do you think, so we've watched the original series. I don't think I've seen every episode of the original series. I don't think I've gotten through the entire, have you gotten through the entire thing? I have not. It's the only one that I, that and the animated series are the only one right. that I have not gotten all the way through. Now there are also, there, there are just some really awesome classic sci-fi episodes that came out of Star Trek from that time. And some of them were really great. And uh, some of them were just really bad. There's, yeah, there's some real raging turds there. There's some stinkers in that one. Spock's but I think, brain. Yeah, but I think like the good ones are the, are they hit so well they basically, you know, one you know they were the good ones were so good you didn't forget them they, oh, they basically yeah. stuck with you and I think that's always a hallmark of great writing and great science fiction writing is they stick with you forever and yeah. I think those that the staying power of those episodes and the loyalty of the fans really speaks to just how well that's that show was conceived. Also, just the writers on that show, the original, they were getting, like, serious science fiction writers to yeah. write that series. Uh, like, uh, Of course, the famous one was The City on the Edge of Tomorrow, uh, famously written by Harlan Ellison, the science fiction writer, and also famously edited by the producers to fit television, I think is a, a really good example. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, I've, I've watched pretty much all of the the major episodes, the, the major episodes, you know, the important ones. And City just, on the Edge of Forever. If I said yeah, tomorrow, that was my mistake. Yep. Yeah, City on the Edge of Forever. Sorry. And, uh, but, I mean, the, the the good episodes are just spectacular. Yeah, it's quality science fiction, and, they, and they're basically like short little movies. Yeah, and, you know, and even with the the limited special effects and budget and whatnot that they had. Mm-hmm. They were still just that good. Like the writing mm-hmm. and the characters were anything that good that you could you could overlook the guy in the foam, in the, you know the foam, foam latex costume, right? You know, trying trying to smash Kirk with styrofoam rocks. Yeah, the gore. Like, yeah, the gorn. Yeah. Talk, talk about for a second, kind of what Roddenberry was going for, the kind of like the vision of Star Trek at least to start. And then, and then we'll we'll work our way up through the movies and into the other the later series. But what was like the basic vision? So kind of like kind of like what we were saying earlier. You know, I mean, Roddenberry had this this grand vision for Star Trek. And, you know, he he tackled all these social issues, and and the the vision for Star Trek was this. Well, I mean, like his vision of future. That's what I. Mean. No, well, no, but that's what I'm saying. Like he, he he used it. He tackled these social issues, but in part that was because he had a very utopian view of the future. Right. Like, Everything wasn't perfect, right? You, you still had enemies and things like that, but humanity itself had had taken steps forward. They eliminated poverty and disease 
and hunger and, and warring amongst themselves for the most part. Mm-hmm. So that not just Earth, but then, you know, then, then human colonies could go out. And then they were able to unify with all these other aliens and create the, the, the giant federation of all right. these, you know, planets and civilizations living together in harmony and working for, for the benefit of all of them. And he, that, had a, he had a very strong, at least Roddenberry I'm talking about, Yes, from that first series had a really strong sense of morality that comes across very strongly in that show. Yes. Of, of right and wrong. Be it, you know, racism like we talked about, or even, uh, like, he, oftentimes in the show you would run across these, like, omnipotent or all-powerful godlike aliens that were controlling other species and, and how Kirk would break them from their, their haze that they would exist in. Or they would, you know, always violate the Prime Directive, which I always thought was kind of funny. Well, and I think one of the things I, I really love about Star Trek, especially in the earlier season, and, and this carries into Next Gen too, very heavily, is that while they at times have to resort to violence, violence is always their last mm-hmm. their last resort. Right. They only they only fight either to defend themselves or as, as when all other means have failed. Right. And I think that it was just and and again, Roddenberry was very very adherent to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a couple. There are a couple times when, like you know, Kirk plays Kirk, Kirk plays crazy or something. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, the idea is, you know, when he's doing that, he's obviously not in his right mind because he's taking such an aggressive, right, aggressive uh, tact. So, so the show ends in '69. It gets canceled uh, after just three or four, three seasons. Three seasons. And then there's a lull, and then it moves into the movies. Well, the, the important thing to remember is, so there were a couple of like false starts for, like a sequel series, right? And it's funny listen, listening to like uh, Leonard Nimoy interview, Leonard Nimoy or William Shatner interviews, because you know there were a couple these couple of false starts, and then you know it's canceled sixty nine seventy seven Star Wars happens, right? And every studio out there says oh fuck we need science fiction and we needed it 10 minutes ago right so at that point they're like all right we're gonna paramount and see paramount's like we're gonna do another star trek series and they started working towards the star trek series and then they said hey let's do a movie instead right and so then that became star trek the motion picture in 79 directed by oh a fantastic guy named Robert Weiss, who you may know from movies like The Sound of Music and, and West Side Story, uh, but who I know from great film noirs such as uh, The Setup and uh, I Want to Live. But that was the first one in 79. And then there's a series of them, kind of, especially what's interesting is the series of the most Star Trek The Motion Picture is kind of a standalone. And then there's kind of a, a trilogy wrapped up in this series from Wrath of Khan to Voyage Home. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. This this Wrath of Khan, I think, stands out as probably the, the best one in the entire lot. I think fan consensus is that's the best one. No, yeah, and, and this is, I would say, in the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. I know you and I have a particular fondness for Star Trek VI. I do, and I know a lot of people hate it. 
and Walter Koenig apologized to us for it. I know that was really that strange. was so great. <laughs> do, we, do we want to talk about that now, or do you want to wait till we get to it? Uh, we 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 can wait a second. We'll we'll, we'll tease yeah. the audience a little bit. That was yeah. yeah. So so you got Wrath of Khan comes out, huge hit, and I mean, there's no spoiler now. Spock dies, and then, I mean, you, I think you, you and I both agree that one's great. Search for Spock always struck me as really weird. I, I that one never landed for me with Christopher Lloyd as the Klingon. I don't know. What did you think of that one? I think so. Christy, yeah, Christopher Lloyd as, as the villain was kind of kind of lame. It, it was the introduction of the the Klingon bird of prey, which is mm-hmm. you know kind of become a a, a series, a franchise Stay- staple. Yeah. You know, for not being in it very much, it's very Spock centric, mm-hmm. and it's intentional. So, so Leonard Nimoy did not want to come back after mm-hmm. Star Trek Two, which is part of the reason Spock died at the end. Right. And this this was basically the search for Spock was his was their way of getting him back into it. And because I think he directed he it, right? Did, and I was about to say, yeah, because he directed it, which actually opened the door later on for terrible, terrible things in Star Trek Five. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I and mean, that's really kind of the thing. Um, yeah, that one just struck me as strange because at the end of Star Trek Two, you've got this fantastic cat and mouse game between. Kirk and Khan, and Khan has this apocalyptic weapon called the Genesis device. It detonates inside his ship and creates a planet, and the movie almost picks up sometime later at this same planet that's created, the Genesis planet, and Spock's body that had been given a burial at space, at sea, is on this planet, and it Spock slowly comes back to life, which I always thought was kind of weird. But okay. It was weird. It also felt like a lot like it was undoing a lot of what we had just seen in the last film. Right. Right. I, I would I would agree with that. So the after then, that, I would say after yeah. that you get Star Trek Four, which is which I did not like. You, you don't like it all. It's it's generally considered not like a not like the fan favorite, but a bigger fan favorite. Yeah, there there are people who defend the film quite passionately, which. Oh, we should also point out Star Trek Three is the, fir- the first movie where an Enterprise blows up. That should that should be yes. This is, uh, that's worth noting. Yeah, because it won't be the last. Right, right, right. Um, I always thought Star Trek Four was kind of hokey in in no small part because we started doing time travel again to get to get whales, and they're in the eighty. They spend most of the time in nineteen eighty San Francisco, and I don't know. That one just didn't register for me. Where you sit on this one? Yeah, as as I've gotten older, I think I've liked this one less and less because it is so silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to find it somewhere. I just saw it a couple days ago, in regards to the fiftieth anniversary. The punk rock kid on the bus in this movie mm-hmm. went on to write like all kinds of crazy shit. Like, like what do you mean? Like, like manifestos, or he became a writer in Hollywood. Like a Hollywood writer. Oh, really? Uh, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. All right, while well, you're doing that. And the next one we have is the notorious uh, Final Frontier where Shatner directed it. I've only ever seen that one once. I remember not liking it, but people freaking hated it when it when it came out. Like, this is considered the low point of the film franchise, I think, by many. Do you remember what made people so mad about this one? 
I just don't think it wasn't very good. Just old-fashioned, not good? Yeah, well, so, so I mean, so when I mentioned this before, so Shatner directed this one. Right. And... Will you tell the story where you watch t- about the special <laughs> features where Shatner's being interviewed? Tell that one really quick. Yeah, so, so I got, like, a big box out of Star Trek movies, and it had, like, a, you know, I think Star Trek's 1 through 5 had all these special features with them. And I watched the special features, and I was just, like, there was, there was an interview with Shatner. It was 17 minutes long. And he only actually talked for about four <laughs> because he fucking Shackner spoke. Right. So if you actually, you know, compressed out the spaces in his in his words and the, him, you know, shifting postures and all that kind of nonsense, you had about a four minute interview. And I just I my eyes were almost bleeding by the end. OK, uh, here we go. So. It's an article off of Wired, and I'll make sure we get this into the show notes. Uh, In truth, Thatcher's post-Star Trek accomplishments are extensive. He worked for decades with the Jim Henson Company. Well, give the the guy's name real quick before Um, you go on. Last name is Thatcher. Hang on, I go. Thatcher, okay. Scroll. Kirk Thatcher. Kirk Thatcher, okay. In truth, Thatcher's post-Star Trek accomplishments are extensive. He's worked for decades with the Jim Henson Company writing feature films like Muppet Treasure Island and directing TV movies for Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow. Mm. Uh, he earned an Emmy for writing for his writing on the short-lived 90s series Muppets Tonight. In 2009, he directed the Muppets' much-beloved, oft-forwarded Bohemian Rhapsody video. That is a great video. It is. We'll put that in the show notes, too. Yeah, just for your own enjoyment. Just watch that. You're, it'll make your day better. Yeah. Uh, he also apparently had a fairly close... A kind of off-and-on relationship with, with Nimoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the article says he stayed. He also stayed in touch with Nimoy off-and-on for years after after Voyage Home wrapped, eventually reuniting with, Trek, with the Trek star just a few years before Nimoy's death in 2015. He was like an uncle to me, Satcher th- says now. He was a very calming presence. He had this big office overlooking Paramount, and at the end of the day, after filming Voyage Home, he'd pour himself a big gin and tonic with a lot of ice, and we sit there and chat. It was one of the highlights of my life and career. Hmm, that is nice. Yeah. So let's move. Let's move forward a little bit to Star Trek VI, which I think is probably my second favorite of of the film franchise, right behind Wrath of Khan. I would say and, third for me, but yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, it's it's right there for me, just because I think still Wrath of Khan is as far as writing directing and storage is just it's hard to beat especially high drama but star trek six to me comes really damn close just because it's such a fun movie to watch yeah it's almost like it's got everything you want in a star trek film and it gives it to you even if it is pretty darn obvious what's coming down like if you could see you could it telegraphs its punches much more than star trek 2 does it also has in the same. It also has the same director as Star Trek Two, so it's a well, lot more of the feel. It's Nicholas Meyer, right? And that plot is an interesting one because again, they go back to kind of what works is they make an allegory for the world they're in. I believe this one was what uh, late eighties, right? No, this is uh, released December sixth, nineteen ninety one, which makes it far more allegorical, I think. Yeah, because that by that point the Soviet Union is breaking up, and the allegory in the Star Trek world was the Klingon Empire, and it's kind of 
the, the Federation and Klingons are coming together because the Empire can no longer sustain itself. So they've got to come to the table and make peace. But there are people on both sides who don't want that to happen. Right. Well, and it, it asks the, the major question, when the Cold War ends, what do you do with the Cold Warriors? Right. And, and Kirk has a hard and time you, dealing with it. Yeah, and what do you do with, with, with the losers? Because, you know, the Soviet Union's been our, 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 our competitor and adversary, and now how do you go forward with them? Right. And, you know, the Klingons in the series, the Klingons are a conquering empire who are oppressing and barreling people over. And now it's we, we've got to work with them. I, I, thought, I always thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I will say that the premise of the movie, with the, which is the Klingon moon exploding and causing this irreparable damage to the, the Klingon home world, mm -hmm. that kind of gets glassed over in the future. Like, that just kind of... It does. It, it's <laughs> kind of like they need an excuse. Right. I was just a little disappointed that never got addressed in, like, next gen. Mm-hmm. No, that was one of those MacGuffins that just happened. But uh, to, to get back to that Walter Koenig story, so we were at Big Apple Con when we were in college. Oh, and the Big Walter Apple Con. And I loved the Big Apple Cons. I thought they were great. And Walter Koenig has a table there. And it's 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 a big get for them, I would say, because other other times at Big Apple Con, it's basically... Roddy Roddy Piper. Play, yeah, it's ex-Playboy Playmates, ex-Pro Wrestlers, and then the guy from F Troop. And, and, the, and the black kid from the Warriors. Yeah, he's he was, at all of them. He was always there. Yeah, I think he just lived in the area. And I went up to him. We went up to him and like you just shook his hand and said hi and told him we were big fans of the show and series and movies. And I told him I thought you know the, the one that was the most fun for me was Star Trek Six. And then he's like, "Wow, I'm sorry." To, he said something like, "I'm sorry to hear that" or something like. Yeah, that. it was something like, like and he just kind of was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that." And we were yeah. like. And I'm like, what, dude? Yeah, the the, the cast. Kind of, there was friction between that cast as they worked with each other, right? You you do you know more about that? I don't actually. I know they had. There was friction between many of them. Particularly, it was friction between Shatner and like everybody except Nimoy. I can believe that. He and Nimoy were good friends. So finally, we get another television series in '87. Right. Yeah called The Next Generation, which is the one we just talked about we grew up on. And I loved this one. That's probably the one I've seen the most of. I got a chance to watch some more of it when uh, I was stuck in a hotel for a couple of days. For whatever reason, BBC loves to rerun Star Trek. Like, I turn on BBC America thinking I'm going to watch Doctor Who or something, and like, I get I get seven hours of Star Trek reruns. I wasn't really complaining that much. Right. You know, I was going to say, one of the things I love, I love about this show is it's constant improvement. Mm -hmm. If you go, if you watch episodes from the first this season, particular series, yes, you mean, yeah, yeah, next gen. If yeah. you watch episodes from the first season and then go watch episodes from the seventh season, in in every regard, the series has gotten better. If the actors are better, the the character development has gotten better. The writing is better. The production value is better. It's just they were constantly moving forward. And making a better product. Yeah, I would agree with that for the most part. I've always found at least the acting for Star Trek The Next Generation to be its biggest weak point, And the character development, you know, kind of attached to that. I know there was some friction between Gene Roddenberry and the current crop of writers because they really wanted to do a lot of interpersonal conflict 
and Roddenberry had this vision that everyone interpersonal conflict, everyone got along. And I know that caused some friction. Well, and, and like you see, one episode you see that, that in, out. In, 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 in series moving forward, we'll talk about that. Yeah, I just I just remember there's one episode that sticks out where I really thought they were trying to push some serious points. It was right after Picard was turned into Locutus and he's turned back into Picard and he's trying to come to grips with the trauma that he suffered. Do you remember that episode? Yes. And I just remember the acting in that episode not living up to the idea of the episode, what they were trying to do. I don't know if you got that feeling either, but I remember the guy who played his brother was kind of off. Just the tone of the acting was off sometimes in that series. It it was, however, I think it's probably the best acting of any of the Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, Star Trek has not been has never been known for its uh, attracting the best quality actors. Although, despite the fact that a lot of them are classically trained stage actors. Yeah, I would say. I disagree with you a little bit because I thought, and I would have to rewatch the series. I thought Deep Space Nine kind of got the the tone right, a little, or at least got the tone better than Next Gen, as far as acting is concerned. Yeah, although DS Nine tends to be a little melodramatic, especially, oh, that's for especially sure. Avery Brooks. That, yeah, no, I'll grant. Yeah, that that's for sure. I'm not saying they were perfect. I just no, no, no. They just. They, there, there was a tone that they got I, that I liked a little bit better. That's fair. And do you remember, talk about the differences between post and pre, or, you know, Roddenberry and post Roddenberry's death, the kind of, the change in the, in the themes and the, and the motifs and the tones of the series, the television shows. Yeah, so, I mean, you didn't get it as much in The Next Generation. You know, by the time Roddenberry died, they were already into the fifth season. So a lot of the scripts have already been written and things like that. You got it a little bit in the sixth and seventh season where things were a little bit darker. You did start to get a little bit more of the interpersonal conflict. Uh, an episode that comes to mind for that is seventh season Pegasus, where Riker has to decide whether to disobey an order from a, uh, his former commanding officer, who is an admiral, mm-hmm. or, to, or to tell Picard about... Uh, basically, the illegal experiment they were running at the time, you know, back in back in the day. Yeah, and, I and do. I do. There was there was I some also, conflict on that one. There was also a lot of um, romantic tension that started to crop up, particularly between like Worf and Deanna Troy, and that that continued in later series such as um, Bashir and the Daxes when they yep. changed over Worf and Dax. O'Brien, um, Avery Brooks's uh, Cisco's wife, stuff like that, or new girlfriend and, and his dead wife. Yeah, that was kind. Of, that was kind of cool. I do you did you like that kind of tonal change? Did it, or did it? Do you think even though it doesn't live up to the way Roddenberry wanted to take it, how do you feel about it? No, I I, I mean I like it. Uh, Deep Space Nine is by far my favorite series, and that's mm-hmm. really where the shift came. Right. No, that's true. You, the, the, the uniforms changed. The special effects changed. I mean, a lot of it had a very different look. Well, and a lot of that actually has to do with the um, the guy who was a showrunner. So, so DS9 started in 93. So it overlapped mm-hmm. Next Gen by about two years. And the first couple of years, you were starting to get some of that, that, that tone shift still. You know, that is one thing. Is It was when Roddenberry died, it wasn't just a dramatic left turn. 
right? It was no. very gradual change. That is very true. But I think the biggest change came uh, when Ira Stephen Bear took over as a showrunner for DS9. Uh, and he really... I don't know if he didn't like the, the tone of Star Trek, but, I, I mean, I've heard interviews with him saying, you know, part of the reason they did the way things a certain way in, in DS9 was to kind of move away from a little bit. Like, the relationship with, with technology wasn't always so friendly. Right. right. They were on that, the Cardassian station with the mix of technologies and it didn't always work right and and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That was always a funny thing about Star Trek, uh, and I don't want to get too much into like comparing it to Star Wars or other science fiction shows. But people have pointed this before, pointed this out before. Star Trek, it was almost like there was no junk in space. There was no sharing economy or secondhand items that were kind of thrown around. Whereas in like Star Wars, there was recycling stations and junk, and Aliens, a great example of at least the first one, like really blue collar futuristic uh, life. I, I, and that was always something that set Star Trek apart. Even when Gene Roddenberry died and they moved away from his utopian vision, they kept a lot of that cleanness. That was always kind of the style was cleanness. They did. Although they really kept that mostly for Starfleet. Mm -hmm. You know, even in like next generation, there's a few episodes where you see like junk merchants and things like that. But but you're right. It's it's certainly, it's here's the Federation over in this corner, and they're all nice and shiny and perfect and squeaky clean. Mm -hmm. And then there's ninety percent of everyone else who's not quite as clean, not quite as good, nice, but you know it's still, you know, pretty fucking new and pretty nice. And there's this little tiny corner over here. These guys are junk dealers and whatever. Right? Yeah, it, I always thought that when they the, did, never got the sense that was that was more than like a, a very outside corner of the universe. Right, and it even like struck me home as I'm thinking about it, or struck home for me as I think about it, with like Voyager. Voyager, the series that follows DS9, where the ship is flung onto the other side of the galaxy and has to work its way home. You know, here's a ship that's uh, going unattended to for many, many, many years. And I, I can't, I watched that series a lot. I can't really remember an episode where the ship just started to kind of break down or get, you know, needed patchworking. I feel like that would, you know, if you were a different, if there were different writers, you would have made that like a recurring motif. But I can't really think of anything where that was going on. Right, well, and especially when you compare it to something like the first season of Battlestar Galactica. Right, which I believe some of the showrunner or the writers called it the anti-Star Trek. So I never heard that, but certainly, I mean, exactly what you're talking about in terms of those kinds of needs and both for mm -hmm. the ships and and for the people... We're, we're far better addressed in something like Battlestar than, than Star Trek. Now, we have, before we go into Enterprise, I want to wrap up real quickly the the next-gen movie series that started right after this show was or came to an end, right? Seven seasons came to an end. You had Generations, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. And these were all kind of met with, I guess, lukewarm responses. How did you feel about these? So, Generations, I think, so Generations, um, Insurrection, and Nemesis were all kind of lukewarm. I think right. the fan response to First Contact is pretty strong. I think so, too. I, I know a lot of people really like that one. I 
I, I, I remember seeing it having or going to see it with very high expectations and then being very disappointed. It just didn't interest. I, I never I never really connected with first contact. First see, contact. see that actually that actually is is my number two slot. Okay. For for uh, for Star Trek films. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one, I, I loved the, the 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 look of the Borg at that point. Well, yeah, the, the Borg design was fantastic. Right, and, and, they, and they've said, said all along, that's what they wanted the Borg to look like, and they just couldn't make it happen in the TV show. Sure. Generations, I liked parts of it. I was kind of hit and miss on the other one. It, so, I'll see if we can, we'll have to dig it up. The, the same guys who wrote the last episode of Next Generation, which we talked about a, a while back on the podcast, you and mm-hmm. I did, and wrote Star Trek Generations... And then they basically wrote them at the same time. Right. I believe they they finished filming the series finale, and then, like, the next day, they were filming the movie. Like, they didn't even change studios. I don't, I don't know about that, but I, you're right. There was definitely very little in between. But according to the writers, the, the series finale came so easy, came super easy. Mm-hmm. And they really struggled and had to work hard on writing generations. And it really turned into more of a buddy picture between Kirk and Picard as opposed to a next generation movie. And they, and they kind of admit that that's, that's the failing of the film. Right. You know? I, I had mixed feelings. Yeah, lukewarm about Insurrection. I kind of enjoyed Nemesis just because it was kind of fun. It felt like they were remaking Wrath of Khan to me. Yeah, I, I can see, I can, I can see a little bit of that. They're, they're, I can, I can get where you're coming from that. Um, I mean, I, I think both Insurrection and Nemesis were fun movies. In terms of a lot of action, they're, they, you know, they almost feel like you know, we, we, you and I have talked about this a lot lately. The current three Star Trek, the newest three Star Trek films, are really like Star Trek action films. They're not really Star Trek yeah. films. I want to get to that in a second, but yeah. But I was going to say this kind of feels a little bit like a transition, right? To that, like they had they had Star Trek elements to it, but that it also had a lot more of the the action to it as well. Right. Oh no, without a doubt. Now the series takes a big it changes direction. Like you had Star Trek Next Generation. Immediately follows up the original, or it doesn't immediately follow up. There's a they have like a big gap, and but then uh, DS9 immediately follows Next Gen. They're in the same time zone. There's they, even they, a little bit of crossover. Yeah, they overlap, and then Voyager overlaps onto right. DS9. When we do Star Trek Enterprise, we go back in time pre Federation. Yes. Now this was a series I had fairly high hopes for, in no small part because I like Scott Bakula. I was actually a big fan of Quantum Leap. This is one of the shows that I would come home to after like school and watch on the Sci-Fi Channel reruns. So I really liked Bakula. Yeah. But I think I gave the series one season and and really gave up on. I couldn't. It it just didn't push my buttons the way I wanted it to. What was your take on this one? So I think just in general, so Next Generation, like I said, got progressively better. Right. DS Nine, I think, got progressively better but not as much as next gen did you know like percent you know kind of sure and i will say i give him a lot of credit for ds9 starting the kind of long story arcs towards the end of that series right the the two seasons of the dominion wars i thought that was really great yeah voyager is a bit hit and miss right there's a lot of good but there's also some real 
real yeah, especially episodes. towards the end. Towards the end, it kind of looked like they were running out of ideas. Yep. Enterprise, there are some really shining episodes out there, and there's some really awful episodes. And that first season, there's a couple of good ones in that first season. That first season's kind of rough. Mm-hmm. Second season is much better. Third season, I, I, I got to give them a lot of credit for trying to do the, the Zindi thing, like for doing that whole arc for just for attempting it mm. but it just after a while you're like okay 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 are we, okay are we gonna blow up earth are we gonna, uh, yeah no yes 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 no no yes oh i all right fine just end it i don't care anymore right i mean that was the time travel arc was that the zindis the time travel arc it wasn't actually time travel what was it so I, but, I can't remember i don't basically basically Creatures from the future were basically projecting themselves back or trying to influence events in the past to cause their future to be better and different. Mm-hmm. So kind of time travel, like the main characters, there's a time, an actual time travel episode in there for the main characters. The main characters, though, basically stay in their own timeline the whole time. Right. Yeah, but basically, they, they, they these characters, these creatures convince this alien race or group of alien races called the Zindi that the humans are going to destroy them in the future so the Zindi should destroy humanity so they send this this test probe to to attack earth and then when that's successful they start building a a much bigger probe to go just straight up blow up earth Mm -hmm. so the enterprise has to has to travel into this what they call the expanse and, mm-hmm. and try and convince the Zindi to not attack Earth. Right, right. How did you, I mean, did you, I mean, like I said, I just, I tuned out of Star Trek by the time that series was in its second season. How did you feel about the whole series? It was only four seasons long. It was only four seasons long. I got back into, actually, into watching Star Trek early with Enterprise. Um, It was all right, you know. I said, the Zindi mm. stuff was, was not bad. Like, I, like I said, I gave them a lot of credit, just the ending kind of drug on. They had to have known about halfway through season four they were getting canceled, though. Or like, like, or they knew that like season four was going to be their last season or something. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the episodes in season four are like these three-part story arcs. Right. I really feel like they should have been like one episode. And so like part one, part two, and part three should have been like opening after first commercial break after second commercial break right, right, right. so yeah they stretched out a little bit of mat- a lot of mat- a little bit of material into a full season so you know you f- i felt kind of you feel a little robbed it was it was some good stuff but i would have liked to have seen seen them do a little more with with that last season so get, picking up on what we talked about a little bit earlier uh, the new Star Treks get rebooted in 2009 with J.J. Abrams making the movie Star Trek. It's followed by uh, Into Darkness and the movie that came out this year called Beyond, which, how did you, now I'll just come out and say it. I don't care for any of these three much at all. I kind of enjoyed Into Darkness because, again, it was just kind of fun. But for the most part, I don't think I enjoy these for the reasons that we kind of stated earlier is they cease to be science fiction films and are pretty much action movies set in the Star Trek universe 
with the original set of characters after a time travel incident in the first movie. And I mean, part of the reason, part of the problem for me was they weren't getting science fiction authors or writers to do them. They were getting action movie directors yes. or action movie Some, some are blockbuster folks. Yeah, I mean, uh, the one for Beyond was the guy, the director for Beyond was a Fast and Furious director. Right. So, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to say good things about them. I also, I got a chance to, like, watch another half hour of Star Trek Beyond while I was waiting for another movie to start. And I was like, ah, let me watch this for a little bit. I kind of caught the climactic end of Star Trek Beyond. It's really awful. Like, it's, after watching it again, it's like, wow, this is, this is tough to, to watch. This is, this is bad. This is really, really bad. Yeah, so... Yeah, I like parts of each of them. Like, there's certain parts of, like, especially the first one I really enjoyed. You know, they did, I think... I think the first one's probably closer to the Star Trek... To being Star Trek-y. Mm-hmm. And I think they did a real nice job of... I don't want to call it fan service, but they got a lot of things right. In terms of just the look and the feel... There are certain things they didn't get right. The engine room pisses me off in that movie terribly. Because you're talking about, you know, it's supposed to be the, the you know, the, the very clean technology look. And they literally filmed it in a, in a, in a brewery. And, it, I mean, it looks like it looks like a brewery. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, so. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate because I've, I've seen production sketches for what they wanted for the engine room. And I'm like, oh, my God, that would have been way cooler. Yeah. It's just. And they just, I, it, was, it was a budget issue. Yeah, and those movies had big enough budgets. Yeah. That's that's a tough discussion for another time. I but, don't know. I, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, they're, they're big action films. I was really disappointed with the fact that the second film decided to do Khan again. Right. I know that. See, that didn't bother me as much as the story. Benedict Cumberbatch playing Khan didn't bother me like that kind of. But like, if you're so that they went basically they did this whole time travel thing and this reboot in order to do new and different stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't do new and different stuff. That's what bugged no, me. No, I mean, yeah, that the second half of Into Darkness is basically the mirror image of Wrath of Khan. Right, and that's what, and I'll, I'll, that's what bugged yeah. me. No, I can see that. That was so forced and so the bad. First, I mean, the I, first half of Into Darkness was actually really good. No, I, I'll say that. I'll, I'll agree with you there. I thought the first half was pretty good. I don't mind. See, Khan, introducing Khan as a whole didn't bother me because... I mean, if you really want to do new and different stuff, just do a whole new and different Star Trek. Why go back and reboot the original cast of characters? Sure. It's always kind of, that, that always rubbed me the wrong way. But it was like, okay, if you're going to do it and you want to do fan service, I mean, fans love nostalgia. I mean, we, we, we saw this with the last Star Wars film. Right. So it, to me, it would make perfect sense to bring back the nostalgic stuff from the original series that the fans would enjoy. I think the problem is Star Trek. There's the Star Trek fan base is a lot smaller than, say, like a Star Wars fan base. So little drops and little references don't play as big as they did, like say, in Force Awakens, as they would in these Star Trek films. I, I really think the Star these new Star Trek films are really trying to grab and bring new fans into the series. And I don't know if they're doing a very good job of it. Yeah, it's, certain, it's certainly Star Trek references are certainly not, for the most part, are not as ubiquitous as Star Wars references. I don't think. I mean, there's there's a couple things that like 
you could do or say and people would get them better like but on the whole I think there's a lot more of that with Star Wars yeah and then uh, now we're we're getting ready for uh, Star, Star Trek Discovery here in just a couple of months yeah I think this is a good spot to close it out it, uh, uh, it's been 12 years since the last series so uh, we you... talked about it briefly on another podcast I'm optimistic I think the ship looks like crap but I, I want to give it a chance. No, I'm, yeah, I'm excited. We'll we'll see. We will see. I, I hope they really capture elements of science fiction that that made the series great. I want them to kind of go hardcore science fiction and not really make kind of a, an actiony film or an actiony story. Yeah. No, this will be this will be an interesting experiment to see. Does Star Trek? I mean, Star Trek. This is 50 years now. Does Star Trek have the longevity to continue for another, you know, couple generations? Yeah, I mean, we, we will certainly find out. Well, I think that's a good spot to wrap it up. Do you want to do the quick, what have you been into this? And sure. then we'll send the folks on their way. Sure. So uh, this week I have been uh, binge reading uh, Kevin Hickman's East of West, which mm-hmm. is um, a comic series basically kind of alternate history meets the apocalypse kind of thing and it's it's really interesting um i had read it probably about up to where i where i am now but like as it was coming out as the issues were coming out and then i've just kind of fallen off but still been picking up the issues so i've been catching up on that and i also just spent the afternoon basically clearing uh my desk and my, and my other desk, so I have a place to work on some other uh, upcoming projects for, for the blog. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Becky and I also binge-watched all of both seasons of Galliant. Oh, I don't know that one. It's hysterical. It's a basically a fantasy comedy set oh. on, okay, uh, was on ABC for two seasons, ABC, I think. They, they sing? Yeah. I've seen some of this, yeah. Yeah, very talented, very, very talented vocalist, but I mean, it's also just really funny. Very mm-hmm. tongue in cheek about the whole fantasy genre, right? Right, right, right. Uh, for me, uh, I speaking of Star Trek, I got into Star Trek Attack Wing, which is the tabletop ship battle miniature game. Uh, played it, played a couple games. It's cool. You can play with just two ships for one one v one or multiple ships. It's pretty neat. Uh, I played it a couple times. How many times did you lose your Oberth? I haven't, I haven't played that one out yet. I have it. I have an Oberth class, and those things have to explode. But uh, I tried. I played as the Klingons and uh, lost badly to the girl, like really badly. She was. She played as the Enterprise and kicked the shit out of me. It was pretty ugly. I also picked up a copy of Before Incal. I'm really down to read that. Got the third volume of uh, trade paperback, Sex Criminals, and the sixth volume of Saga. I got to get to them. I got to retry. I got to start saga over again and reread it because it lost me somewhere and i don't know where or yeah. why i actually lost i did that a couple months back and there was a lot of stuff i had forgot i just straight up forgotten about was it in a good way or a bad way good way it was like oh yeah i forgot i totally forgot about this whole like okay. subplot and stuff and and we just been watched stranger things the netflix original series do you know about this i do i have yet to watch it uh, very good, like really good. I was we watched telling me, yeah. I was like, yeah. Everyone had said the same thing to me. Very compelling. 
there are some parts of it you go, oh, okay, fine, I'll let that go. But overall, good storytelling. Good quality storytelling. So I have to say, I'm very happy with that. And I did my first D&D game yesterday. How'd that go? I died. Did you really? Yeah. Uh, three, what was it? Three, you, you die and you have to do the death saves or whatever they are? Yep. Failed all three in a row. Done. Damn. First, first combat of the game. Took us three hours to finally get to like a suit of armor that came to life and we were going to fight it. And it just put a sword straight through my chest and I fell down the steps and that was it. My, my, my party member, wow. one party member rolled three critical fails in a row. Going up the steps, rolled a one, fell on his face. Tried to get up to fight the suit of armor, fell, missed, hit another party member, tried to attack again, and injured himself with his own weapon. And then I died. It was, but by that point I was okay. As, as a side note, okay, I, 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 I started my uh, Star Wars group back up, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the characters starts off in jail, and it's not a very nice jail, so they took away his bucket. <laughs> So like you know he uh, he really had to go, so he's like he's like he's like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna poop right here like they're on a landing pad and he's like I'm gonna poop right here, <laughs> and they're like they're like try, the other party members like trying to force him into the uh, into the shuttle and I'm like tell you what make an endurance check let's see if you can hold it. <laughs> the answer was nope. <laughs> Good. And then later on he decided to punch a character who was wearing a helmet. Like forgot the character was wearing a helmet, so he just takes a swing at him. That Broke didn't. His hand. Yep, that didn't yeah. go well. Oh, that's great. All right. Turns out my adventurers are morons. I love them though. It always makes it interesting. Okie doke. All right, folks. If you like what we do, make sure you head on over to thereforeageek.com. Check out our blog posts and our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. <laughs> so once again, I'm Andrew. I'm the dude. And you've been listening to Therefore a Geek.